And as we prepare to hear God's word, would you just join me in prayer? Father, I just pray that you would speak in your word. Reveal to us the beauty and the glory and the power and the healing, the healing power. Even in places we don't even know we need to be healed. Of Jesus, your Son, and Spirit, connect us to Christ. Connect us to our union with Jesus Christ so that we may too hear these words by faith. So we turn from sin and turn to you that we may hear these words. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Well, as we heard from Pastor John last week, we're, we're coming off of two pretty incredible miracles of Jesus. His name and his glory and his renown are spreading throughout the, the tiny hamlet of northern New Mexico. Wait, no, northern Israel. Similar, actually. Uh, Galilee, a bit of an unknown region in an unknown place. And thus far, Jesus has faced tremendous reception. Here we find him now for the first time meeting some real opposition in the form of the skepticism, albeit from our perspective, quite justified of the scribes, the teachers of the law, the professional religious people, the churchgoers. Jesus has pronounced his word. And miracle after miracle reminds us that he is not only a man of words, but action. He procures what he promises. The the miracles aren't just one-offs. You've probably wondered, why didn't he just heal everybody, right? Could have just gone around doing that, I suppose. But Jesus isn't Harry Potter, and so he didn't set out with a wand to just go about zapping people. Each of these miracles has a, a, a purpose and a point to move forward, not only Mark's gospel, but the story of redemption itself. So now we find Jesus back in Capernaum, about 20 miles northeast of Nazareth, his hometown, at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that Capernaum was the home of Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. And some scholars think that this was actually kind of where Jesus had made his home as well as he launched his ministry as a bit of a, a headquarters for Jesus, this bustling little seaside fish market town, Capernaum. And in this city and around the region of Galilee, people have become really interested in this guy. Who is this guy? What is he up to? What is he saying? What is he doing? Again, we're now a few miracles in, and these interested folks have converged upon Capernaum, and they want to hear more. They're flocking to Jesus, so much so that we're told that there isn't really any room in the house. And you can imagine, sort of not like our streets, but crowded streets and, you know, low-roofed adobe homes, and people are just trying to get in so they can hear the words of this rabbi. It's as if a region like northern Galilee, which has been long forgotten, and long oppressed by the Roman Empire, is ignited now with a spark of hope. Is it him? Could it really be him? Is it the one? Is it the one that God has promised in the law, in the wisdom, the history, and the prophets? Could this be the Messiah or the anointed one of God? Mark takes us into the story quickly because he wants to get at our hearts, not just our heads, And he wants to get us asking that same question about Jesus. You know, Lord, liar, or lunatic. 
but not just a good teacher. Because all the crazy stuff that Jesus said that deeply offends religious people like you and me makes him affirmatively not merely a good teacher. And so you may have noticed in our text, I mean, it almost gets annoying. It's really bad English, by the way. I think it's maybe decent Koine Greek, but the word and is used nine times. And this happened, and that happened, and then this happened, and then the next thing. Mark's fast pace and action is if he's giving us a present to unwrap. Is he the king? Is he your king? Can he really help? Can he really heal? Does it really matter in 2022? In Santa Fe. And what is Jesus doing when we come upon him in a home in Capernaum? Well, you might expect for a Jewish Messiah to be laid out on a table, a huge game of ancient Near Eastern risk, battle plans, sword and stone, sharpening. Instead, we find the rabbi preaching the word, it says to them. Here's what that means. It means that he is taking, as he did in uh, the end of Luke, the road to Emmaus, the law and the prophets, Torah, the law, which doesn't just mean rules, it means God's revelation to his people of how he's going to save them from sin and death, and all the history and the prophets. He's preaching the Old Testament, and he's explaining all these signs, all these actions, all these people, they point to God's promised rescue plan and God's promised rescuer. Well, what's the heart of God's plan to rescue his people? Well, we know because Jesus tells us it's to make them extremely religious so they can judge other people when they're messing up. No, (laughs) you know that's not true. The heart of the plan of God is to heal, to heal, to heal wounds, to heal brokenness, to heal pain, to heal trauma, to be in the muck and the dirt and the mess with his people, to bring real and true healing. You see, the, the end game of Messiah wasn't just, you know, free the Jews from Roman oppression. Nor should we think for a second that, that it's merely to just provide, you know, modern day American Christians with a fire insurance certificate so they can someday go float in the ether like little cherubs with a harp which sounds utterly boring. I mean, if Jesus is there, it's not boring. But it's so much more than that. The heart of God and his rescue plan in and through Christ is to heal the world of its brokenness and sin and to renew the world. The end game of God is to bring about a new and forever garden, a new heavens and a new earth, embodied souls vertically worshiping God and being fully known by Him without sin, horizontally fully knowing and loving one another on a new heavens and a new earth, exploring that and glorifying God forever. That sounds a lot better. The heart of the rescue plan of God is to heal So you may notice in some of your Bibles that the sort of superscript of this particular paragraph is the healing of the paralytic. It's a picture. It's a precursor of what Jesus the Messiah has come to do for the whole world. The forgiveness of the sin, and now rise up, take your mat, and go live a new, full life. I feel like all of us can can relate to this, really. Really, and I'm trying not to like put it in, you know, uh, like a lower toned, like pastor voice, you know, prayer voice. I don't want to do that. 
but really I think we can relate to the need for healing. Healing in our own lives, perhaps from your past, perhaps from decisions that, you know, you're not trying to live in regret, but you would, you would basically do what you could if you could to get back and change that decision. Fear, anxiety, anybody been feeling any of that lately? Just like low. I mean, I, you, it was low grade, now it's like medium grade. Sadness, shame. The first part of meeting and being known by and embraced by Jesus in this story is the admission that I need healing because there's stuff that I work really hard to dig down, to bury deep. As it were, metaphorically, things that paralyze us, that make us the same, helpless, hopeless, and immovable like the paralytic. And we can shove it down, and we do often try to do that, and yet it still transmits, doesn't it? We see it in our closest relationships with husbands, with wives, with our children, that those things that paralyze and cripple us do indeed transmit. We need healing. We need healing. Not just some guy in a cool story 2,000 years ago. We. And the world needs it too. I know most of us have been, you know, pretty glued to the news this week with everything going on in Ukraine, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but my heart's just been really heavy about all that. Like, really heavy. I'm seeing a lot of this going on right now. And this isn't, you know, I'm not trying to co-opt this tragedy, you know, for the sake of an illustration. I mean, I'm telling you about what I felt like this week going, you know, it's been two years of challenge, and now this? you got to be kidding me. And all the pictures... You know, I know a bunch of you guys have seen that video of the dad who's saying goodbye to his daughter as she gets on the train. Let's stop talking about that right now so I don't begin weeping in the middle of my sermon. Heart is heavy. Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? And I was talking to Caitlin, my wife, about this. We're like, I mean, aren't people a little bit more civilized than this in 2022? Apparently not. Apparently, the heart is the heart. It's broken. It needs healing. And the, and the challenge that humankind has faced from the very beginning of the exile from the garden is unchanged. We, Jesus told us, right, that in these last days, these end times, which, by the way, is from the cross till now, we've been living in it, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. So we're not surprised, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we do indeed feel the pain and long for the healing. You know, just, it's made me sad and angry, right? You want someone, some person, I won't name any names, rhymes with tootin', to direct your anger toward. Sad, angry, and you know, I've got two little girls, so there's some scared in there too. I hate it. I hate the unhealedness of the world that would be so deeply unhealed that it would break out so treacherously in war. Our text shows us that God hates it too. And I don't say that lightly. There's nothing light about it. There's nothing light about God sending His one and only Son to bear the justice of God's wrath and the fullness of our sin that we might be forgiven because someone stands in our place. God hates it too. 
He sent his son to heal, to heal the world and to one day make all the sad things untrue and to make everything broken, healed, and to make all things new. The good news is that this healing, this help is on offer to us. It's on offer to the paralytics. And as I hope we'll see, it's also scandalously on offer to the scribes, us bunch of scribes. The good news of this story, the healing of Jesus, it, it should comfort you if you are afflicted. If you are deeply aware of your own need for healing, there is great comfort here. And for some of us, myself included so often, if we are, you know, quite happy trying to keep our own life under control, striving and make a life for ourselves, not only does this story comfort the afflicted, but it afflicts us in all of our false and idolatrous comforts. Because we know, I mean, just look around for goodness sake. We know that no amount of money or education or power or pleasure, everything's going good right now, is enough to really bring the deep heart level healing that in our souls we cry out for. God has sent his son to heal. And so we get this story for us in two parts. The first part is this. It's a, it's a healing miracle for us. It's for the paralytic, it's for everybody in the house, but it's for us. A healing miracle for us. And secondly, a healing message to us. One that's not easy to hear, but a message that we need to hear. A healing message to us. So in the, the first part of Mark's text, the, really the first story with tension and resolution, the story of the paralytic, we get a healing miracle for us. We see the faith of the paralytic and his friends and the response of Jesus to them, his faithfulness. Now, I think Mark wants us to be a bit astounded by their, by their faith, and we should be. It says that they came to Jesus. They had faith. The they is probably inclusive of the four friends and the paralytic. Surely it took all four of them to lift the man and the man himself to be willing to go. He doesn't seem to be taken you know, without consent. These four have great faith. They believe. They believe that Jesus can help them. They go to Jesus believing he can help them. They trust in hope, even though they have not yet experienced the results of that hope. And I think one thing we learn here about their faith is that, is that when we believe, when we trust in Jesus, even if we find ourselves outside the home and on the mat, faith takes action. Not that it takes action to believe. Faith is a gift. They're responding to all the things they've already heard about Jesus. But faith takes upon itself the nature of bearing the fruit of action. They dare to hope. Could it be? And hope was needed, especially for the paralytic. We can't miss this part of the story because to miss it, to miss his helplessness and hopelessness, perhaps his ceremonial uncleanness, his inability to get to the temple in Jerusalem or approach the clean and holy purified rabbis, we would miss so much. The paralytic is not in a good place, especially 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Society was not friendly to people with uh, physical handicaps. There was no OSHA. Capernaum did not have wheelchair ramps. And so here we find a man who physically is completely in need. 
Jesus loves to move toward people who are in need, who know their need. In fact, we often say, come into the Lord's table. All you need is need. And yet it was worse for this man. Not just the physical ailment that in that society would have been very difficult to deal with, would have dehumanized this individual, would have taken away so much dignity for him as a man to provide, to protect, to work, to have vocation. But there's a spiritual component as well. Perhaps you remember the story of Jesus healing the blind man in John's gospel. And, the, you know, the religious leaders, they're so ridiculous. Oh, I love them. I see myself. I want to punch them. Do I punch myself? Perhaps. Jesus heals this blind guy, and what do they do? Classic church, let's form a committee. We're going to form a committee and figure out what happened. We're going to form a committee and see if Jesus followed the rules to heal this blind man. And some of the religious leaders and even the disciples are like, well, who was it, Lord? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents who sinned that he was born blind? These people in the ancient Near East weren't, weren't idiots. They didn't think every, you know, they didn't think there was like a demon under every rock and every bush had an angel or whatever. And, you know, they didn't think every disease and ailment came from, you know, some spiritual relation. And yet at the same time, they had a, a supernatural and cosmic view of the universe that these things were often tied together, especially for the covenant children of Israel, especially in the case of blindness, because the Messiah had said he was coming to set people free that they might see. So for the paralytic, it's worse. It's actually, you could be cursed, man. You could have screwed up. You could have done the wrong thing, or maybe your parents did the wrong thing. You deserve what you got. Brings us to the most fundamental of all human questions as we consider their faith, their great faith. A scary question for us to ask, a vulnerable question. If I go, if I get carried by my friends to the feet of Jesus, how will he receive me? In my brokenness? How will he receive me in my need? Will his promises hold for me? And before we get to the response of Jesus, I just want to meditate for a second on the, on the greatness of these friends. And just as an exhortation to us from the text, called to live life together in real, not superficial community, we are not meant to struggle alone. In your own way, we are all the paralytic. And so the question is, do you have friends like these? Do you have friends who are willing to pick you up and take your mat and carry you? Because you're heavy. Your baggage isn't light. Do you have friends who are willing to get creative and go behind the house and climb the stairs and rip off the roof? It's almost as if Mark is reminding us here, our, our journey of faith is not meant to be alone. It's meant to be together in community. You imagine this paralytic has to feel a deep sense of shame. What's wrong with me? You know, not that something has gone wrong in my life, but look at me. What is wrong with me, with this thing that I can't fix? I'm helpless to fix it for myself. And yet, what do his friends do in his shame and his loneliness? They're not like Job's friends who lecture him and tell him he's a sinner. These guys will have none of it. They love him. They lift him up. They carry all his weight. They, they do the unpardonable sin in New Mexico. They break a flat roof. 
And as they lower their friend down through the roof, sweat and tears, I imagine, as they shock the crowd by breaking into the home, as they no doubt frustrate the scribes because they've, you know, damaged property and broken the law, how does Jesus respond to them? You know, is he, is he angry because they've interrupted his sermon? He was on point 17, and 18 is the best point, and you just ruined it. You know, is he frustrated with their wily way of getting into his home? You know, or upset and indignant with a sense of justice because they cut in line and they shouldn't have. No. He responds to their responsive faith with powerful and authoritative faithfulness. So here is where this is a healing miracle for us. Where you need healing. Where you are paralyzed. Where you are broken. When you come to Jesus, he will not reject you. He will not forsake you. He will not shame you and mock you and turn you away. And why don't you go work on getting better? Here's three self-help books I need you to read first and a podcast and start running and training for a marathon and eat better while you're at it and then we'll talk. Now he responds to this helpless paralytic with mercy and compassion, with faithfulness. This is the new king. And what does he say to the man? Of all the things he could have said, perhaps there is no greater and more beautiful healing balm than, a, than for someone like a paralytic being lowered through the roof in such a needy situation. He looks at the man, and of all the things he could have said, the words, son, your sins are forgiven, come from his mouth. I mean, just imagine being the paralytic there. Everybody's looking at you. You've got adults, you've got kids. Some are full of awe, some are full of anger. The room is tense. The air is tight. And in one sentence, Jesus has completely changed your life. You've been known as the town paralytic who needs healing. Now you're known as a son, a daughter, united to Christ by faith. It's as if Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you a new name. I'll bring you into my family. You're no longer identified in this way. You're identified in me. That means whatever needs healing, however heavy the baggage is, whatever's going on, we're no longer dealing with it as an outsider. Now you have a father and a friend who will help you carry it. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Which shows us that although Jesus does not skirt around the very important physical issue of the paralysis, he sees the deeper issue. Look, we won't do a show of hands, but everybody in this room, you know, just raise your hand if you're going to die at least once. Okay? That's everybody. You're like, but what if Jesus comes back? He'll probably still let you die, all right? And then whisk you up and do his thing if you're cocky about it. Everybody's going to die once. Many, many of us have had physical ailments that we've prayed and prayed for the Lord to remove, and he, he hasn't. And some of those physical ailments have taken the lives of people we know and love. And Jesus has great mercy on the fact that we live in a broken world and therefore our bodies are not glorified bodies and so disease is real. But he sees the deeper issue. He sees what this man really needs. 
right? Because he could, he could have his legs healed, he could stand up, he could walk, and then go right back into a life full of pain and brokenness and baggage. Heck, this guy could get up and walk and have his legs broken again in another two weeks. You know, if he was driving his horse cart around Santa Fe, that's probably not improbable. Jesus sees the deeper issue because Jesus himself is the deeper solution. You see, all the language that Mark is using here is similar to the language of prophetic fulfillment, similar to the language of the Messiah's coming, similar to the language of Jeremiah 31, 34, that the anointed one will come and he will heal your wounds and he will forgive all your sins. So this miracle is for us, that you and me, when we come in our need, By faith, even weak, mustard, seed-sized faith, when we come needy and broken to Jesus, he delights to receive you. He delights to heal. He delights to help. It's a beautiful story. And then Mark turns it on its head. A healing miracle for us. The paralytic receives grace. Too much grace. Too much mercy. This is not how the world works, people. It's just not. Work hard, get yours. Don't work hard, don't get yours. Don't worry about the fact that, you know, many of us were born into, you know, great homes with an incredible amount of, you know, privilege surrounding us in that sense. Don't get triggered on me. But we we think that, don't we? It's all conditional. I work hard, I get what I worked for. My wages, my earnings, I deserve it. Well, this is exactly what the the scribes are thinking. Which is why in verse 6, Mark says, now, now something happens. You see, the needy paralytic comes in his helplessness, but the the scribes are sitting there with their arms crossed saying, we can help ourselves, thank you very much. Even though the, the healing is beautiful, some see it as really ugly. The sadness about the scribes is they don't even know that they're they're the ones who are truly paralyzed. They are paralyzed in their self-righteousness. And the most putrid, heinous, stinky form of self-righteousness there is, is religious pride and self-righteousness. They're upset, these scribes, because of what Jesus said. These guys are basically the IRS of the Jews, right? I mean, they're, they're going around to investigate all these different claims and rabbis, make sure everything's kosher. And all of a sudden, Jesus says a pretty crazy thing. Your sins are forgiven. Well, they knew the law well. Most of these guys probably had the entire Old Testament in your Bible, that's a lot of pages, memorized. And they knew that the Old Testament was very clear. If someone needs healing, then they can go to the priests who mediate God's healing in Jerusalem at the temple through the sacrificial system. And the priests mediating God's words can say, your sins are forgiven. But no man, no man and no woman can declare your sins are forgiven. It's blasphemy. And the consequence of blasphemy, even for a rabbi in northern Galilee, is death. They're right, aren't they? We would probably have done the same thing. We do the same thing when we judge the paralyzed around us. When we are frustrated by how slowly some people are healing, 
When we're frustrated by the brokenness that we see in our own city, we do the same thing. Jesus, this isn't how the world works. You can't just be that generous and gratuitous with grace and mercy. You can't just go around forgiving sins. We don't know anything about this guy. We need to check out his story. You can't just start with forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the end of a long list of conditionals that once he has fulfilled is a possibility for him if he does it the right way. You see, the grace of Jesus is meant in this story to offend, to afflict our sense of our own self-righteousness. That's why this story isn't just about a miracle for us who need healing in the paralytic, but a message to us in this confrontation with the false righteousness of the scribes. We want to judge. We do judge. We want our version of justice our way and in our time. And this is the very root of sin. Sin is a word we use a lot. It's a bad word. You're not allowed to use it in 2022 anymore, but we still do because it's in the Bible. And sin doesn't mean, tisk tisk. I broke a law. I said a naughty word. Or in your all's case, you know, I watch a lot of shows that have naughty words in them and don't tell my pastor. All right? That's not what sin is. Now, I'm not telling you to, you know, obviously we want to grow in the grace of God and put sin to death and grow in Christ. But sin is simply with Adam, our first father, believing, did God really say? Did God really say he loves you? and that he's trustworthy at the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Let him decide what's good and what's evil, and and he's trustworthy. He'll bless you. No, sin is all of us in our own hearts, deep down, wanting to be our own God. And that's why this grace is so offensive of our conditional ways and our self-righteousness. Because we often perceive ourselves as the deserving and the downtrodden as the undeserving. So when we hear these kind of stories, or, you know, the thief on the cross, you got to be kidding me with that story. That's one of the most ridiculous ones in the whole Bible. You're telling me this criminal who's got capital punishment can just say, oh, Jesus, I believe in you, as he's dying, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise? Come on, bro. That's not how the world works. Or as my daughter would say when, you know, one of her toys gets taken, that's not Fair. And what this story wants to reveal about the silent grumblings of our own little scribal recesses in our needy for healing hearts is thank God we don't get what's fair from God. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Thank God we don't get justice from God, you know, on the conditional scales of our lives. Have I been good enough? But instead, we get what we don't deserve. Grace means we don't get fair, but we get God's faithfulness instead. And it's not cheap grace. It's not free. It's not without consequence. Jesus paid the consequences. Jesus took the justice that we deserve. He took the wrath and burden of God's justice that we deserve in our sin and bore it upon himself on a cross so that we could be free and he could be our substitute. Thank God we don't get what we don't deserve but Jesus does. And that's why, knowing that, Jesus could speak to them with such authority. What's easier to say? Rise from the dead of your mat and walk, or your sins are forgiven, because I've come to do both. And so he gives the scribes what they wanted. He goes ahead and says it. All right, man, get up. Rise from the dead and walk. And he does. 
And on that authority, they know that he's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a nice prophet. He's more than just a rabbi who came to sharpen his sword and overthrow the Romans. Jesus says, this is all happening so that you may know I am the son of man. I am the one from Daniel chapter 7. The one who will come and truly bring the judgment of God against sin and death and the devil on earth. I will put death itself to death. I will crush the head of the serpent. But the story ends with a twist. A healing message to us. So in our scribe places, let conviction land. Let the conviction of the Holy Spirit land on your self-righteousness. You're not that good. Put you in a really tough situation with no power and no food and we'll see how good you are. Be walking dead in about 30 seconds. The message convicts us. But it doesn't leave us in conviction. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repent. And so at the end, there's a twist. Because in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes to bring judgment. But Jesus comes as the Son of Man to take judgment. And in that way, this Son of Man, this true and perfect King, can twist what would appear to be at first judgment into the beauty of God's grace and forgiveness for the weakest and the lowliest and the most helpless among us. I love the line from the song that we just sang. Bring your heartache, bring your burden, you can lay them down at the door. I mean, ah, to, to really live like this, man, to believe this, to believe this, Jesus, help. There is no fear. You belong here. Step into the house of the Lord. The story, as one scholar said, is a mini gospel. The authority of Jesus is vindicated. The grace of Jesus is radically on display. And the power to bring life where there is only death is before us. The garden is coming again. The healer is here. The question for us is, will we go? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story in, in Mark's gospel. We're we see ourselves in it all over the place. You know, we're in the crowd in awe. You know, we're the kid who's playing with his toy, not paying attention. Uh, we're the scribes who are a bit indignant because I don't know if that person deserves that kind of healing. And Lord, we are certainly, in more ways than we even begin to know, uh, the paralytic and his friends. Jesus, we believe but help our unbelief. We confess to you that sometimes it's hard to believe in this world amidst wars and rumors of wars. It's hard to believe that you are the healer who is healing. But Jesus, I pray you would remind us as we are lowered through the roof that you are the one who came down for us. Jesus, you came down from the roof. You didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. You gave up your kingly riches and throne that you might come as a humble servant to rescue us. So rescue us, help our unbelief where we're doubting and questioning and skeptical or hurting. Maybe, maybe we say it's intellectual, but so often, Lord, it's because of our pain. It's because of where we're scared or we're not healed or we're alone. Heal us. Hear our prayers of how long. And Lord, I pray as you draw us now, as you bring us to your table, that you would do that. May this table be a place of your promises and your healing. Oh, Lord, sometimes we come with strong faith. Sometimes it's so weak. 
But this is your house. This is your food. This is the king's banquet. You prepared it. You made it. It is a gift. It is a gift for us, for free, for healing, for body and soul. So meet us here, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.